Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I'm half black and my father and my brothers dealt with police brutality all their lives. And so for me, I've witnessed it. I've seen it growing up and it needs to change. There should be no reason why we are not policed the same way white people are policed. It's not like this stuff is made up. And now, thanks to social media, thanks to everybody over the, all over the world being able to see it, they can see too that these police are just everything we've always said they've been. We've said it for hundreds of years, nobody listened to us. I'm tired. I have, obviously I'm black, I have a black father, I have black friends, and it's like, you can wake up one day and they can be gone, and it could have been because their headlight was out of the car. And I'm just tired, I'm tired of, hearing about it. I'm tired of them killing them. I'm tired of them getting away with it. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel broadcasting remotely. You just heard Alicia McKenzie from Bridgeport, Charisma Redding from New Haven, and Brittany Dixon from Stanford, all talking about why they came out to protest against police violence after the death of George Floyd. They were protesting in New Haven on Sunday. That protest stopped traffic on I-95 for several hours. Did you join a demonstration in your community after the police killing of George Floyd? We want to hear from you today, where we live. Join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk with a criminal justice thinker about her views on how to transform policing in America. And later, we hear from an arts organization that's providing space for artists of color to gather. First, joining us now on Zoom is Robin Porter. She's a state representative for New Haven and Hamden, also a member of the Connecticut General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Representative Porter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm happy to be here. Uh, We were just hearing these voices of, of these young people. It's really striking to hear them talking about their fears for their families, their loved ones. What what was your reaction when you hear them talking? And you're also a mother. Uh, my heart is quivering, my belly is aching. Just the sound of their voices um, stirs up a lot of emotion and it just really brings to surface the things that we have been dealing with myself personally for almost 54 years. And yes, I am a mother. So it concerns me in ways that only black mothers can understand. You know, every time my children leave the home, we are in a constant state of not being able to breathe, holding our breaths. You know, the phone rings. The first thing I do is listen for background noise when I answer and it's one of my kids. You know, I'm listening for the tone of their voice. I'm listening to see if they're anxious or if they're calm because I'm afraid it will be that calm, you know? So it's very emotional um, and it's very, in your face, it's direct, you know, and I just, I'm, I'm so thankful for the young people that are taking the lead on this movement and, 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 and carrying the mantle on something that has been happening in this country for centuries. Hmm. 
You mentioned uh, you worry that it's that call. Uh, tell me more about that, that it's a call that all parents fear, that something happened to their child, or the fact that it's your child and they have had an experience with a police officer. Absolutely. You know, when I say that call, it is that call that uh, there is an altercation with a police officer. There has been arrest, which I went through. My son was arrested. I did get that call. I thank God that he was safe. Um, but he was in police custody. So that was um, very scary. Uh, the call that, um, you know, I'm being detained. I'm being hurt. I don't know what to do. So there is protocol in my house. We go through, you know, a process of who you contact first, what you do first. You know, you write the badge number down. You call me. You don't get me, you text me. You don't get me. There's the second person in mind that you call. But I need to know where you are what the officer's badge number is, you know, street, location. These are the things, you know, stay calm, be respectful. And as we know, Lucy, none of those things really matter if um, a police officer is determined to actually brutalize or take the life of a Black person. Hmm. You know, there have been a lot of people talking over the last week, uh, many people still demonstrating, not only here in Connecticut, but around our country. What is different about this moment, Representative Porter? Are you hopeful moving forward that all of the uh, time and uh, hours and, and years you've and, uh, and you and others have put in uh, to ask for things like police accountability, that this is the moment that it's going to happen? I am hopeful. Um, and I am hopeful for so many reasons. I'm hopeful, uh, one of the, the, the big reasons that I'm hopeful, Lucy, is because of who's leading the charge. I've been saying it for a long time. You know, we talk about young people are our future. When I've been speaking to young people, <clears throat> I've told them, you know, you are our, our right now. And it is right now in the moment of this movement that they have the power to take this to a totally different level than myself or my elders could do. So I'm very hopeful. I'm hopeful because of the people that are leading these protests. And it's not just what's going on now. I'm talking about the women, the young women, the girls that have been on the front lines of this movement since its inception. So we're talking a long, long history of black women and black girls and black men and boys leading in these kind of movements. And it's because of the experience I had, you know, with the the, the, the um, protest that we actually had here in New Haven. You know, there was an initial concern because we didn't know who organized it. So it was like trying to figure out who organized it. And then when I got word that Black Lives Matter New Haven was going to be there to, 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 to kind of make sure that things didn't go south, that was when I had a level of comfort that propelled me to make my way downtown. And, you know, I can remember saying to myself, wow, look at this. They are, you know, organizing on the drop of a dime, right? This this wasn't because it was planned. They came down, they answered a clarion call because they wanted to maintain safety in the city. And I was impressed with how they were able to show up and actually in the midst of all this going on, peacefully organize people and make sure that no one was going to be hurt. I think that, um, you know, that that gave me hope. Um, it continues to give me hope. But I have to, like, use this moment to just say that I was really disappointed 
in what I'm hearing and seeing um, in the media around them being demonized and villainized, you know, because of an incident that ended that protest that I think was really um, harmful in the way that they're being displayed. So I just want to publicly apologize for any damage or harm that is being threatened or may come against them because these are the very women that have carried this movement in this city and kept this city safe because they are boots on the ground and they have relationships in this community that help to control what goes on in moments of mayhem and mm -hmm. anger and frustration you know so i just wanted to put that out there and say that as well um we need to give credit where credit is due and and i'm giving credit to uh black lives matter new haven and i'm giving credit to the citywide youth coalition and the young people that are on the front lines of this movement uh, Representative Porter, just to, um, again, clarify for our listeners who may not know what you're referencing, you're talking about uh, an incident in New Haven where pepper spray was used. Can you tell us briefly what happened? Yes. You know, um, there's two sides to this story. And I did speak with the chief. I've spoken with Lieutenant Cologne, who is um, in my district, um, a community police officer at that. And um, I've spoken to Black Lives Matter, I've spoken to the youth, I've spoken to um, people that I deal with um, at the Capitol. And I'm talking not just black and brown people, I'm talking white people that were on those front lines at that precinct where they were accused of um, taking force and aggression to try to enter the police station. And from what I've heard and what I've seen, that doesn't line up. And um, I'm just really disappointed that, you know, we did have officers out there that are in the community. Because I was under the belief it happened because officers that weren't in the community were the officers out there trying to handle the situation. But after learning that there were officers out there that are actually on the grounds in our community and know these people that were out there at the precinct mm -hmm. that evening and that night, and they felt like the only recourse was to pepper spray and push people downstairs. And we're talking women, we're talking children, and, and we're talking families that were out there and no one would bring their family and their children out with the intention of being violent. I know these people. Mm -hmm. I've been shoulder to shoulder with them for years. So I'm disturbed by the narrative that is being spun around what actually mm -hmm. happened. So that's the conversation that will, you know, continue to be had with myself with Chief Reyes, with Lieutenant Cologne, uh, his commanding staff, and with the, the activists, you know, New Haven, mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter, our youth. And I will say this, Lucy, real quick. I am concerned that there is, you know, a narrative and rhetoric out there right now as we speak um, surrounding the protests that the young people are gonna do tomorrow at 3 p.m. in New Haven. And they do plan to be at City Hall and they do plan to go to uh, the police department, and it is my prayer, my fervent prayer, that the response that they receive will not be the same response and the same excessive, what I feel is excessive, um, response to the the Monday, the, the Sunday folks that were down there. 
You're hearing State Representative Robin Porter, who serves New Haven and Hamden. She's a member of the Connecticut General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Uh, today, as we talk about uh, this week in demonstrations, response not only in Connecticut, but around our country uh, to the police killing of George Floyd. Uh, maybe you have joined in on these demonstrations. We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Justin Farmer is calling in now. He's a Hamden on the Hamden Legislative Council. Uh, Justin, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy, uh, and good morning uh, to both of you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, as you said, I'm a city councilor in Hamden, and I was there on the front lines and was pepper sprayed with one of my colleagues. Um, and, and, you know, there there is room for hope, for sure, seeing young people I think Representative Porter might laugh as I'm 25 uh, and I'm an incumbent elected official, um, but seeing younger people than myself out there organizing and demanding respect for their rights uh, is really powerful. But I think one of the concerns I have is, you know, before we can move forward and really have space to heal and start to do the legislative work that we need to do, uh, we have to be respectful to people's voices. Um, there is a narrative that these protests were were violent or disrespectful. Um, I was there for 12 hours. Um, I, I was there the whole entire day um, until the protests ended. And, you know, to see, I, I saw community members from all around that I knew, but to see the care that uh, these women of color took to make sure that people who had access to wheelchairs felt safe, that people who had visual impairments felt safe, that they were able to demonstrate and be in community and show support uh, for for their neighbors and their friends and their mailmans. And their, uh, I remember a powerful moment where a young woman was saying that she was disappointed in one of the cops because every day she makes his sandwich. And she knows him, and she knows his badge mm-hmm. number, she knows him well, and she knows what he likes on his sandwich when he doesn't like. Uh, and I think we have to bring it back to that level, that it's a personal level, that this is, uh, as the Houston chief said uh, uh, on CNN the other day, you know, this is more than just about police brutality, but this is about uh, structural deficits that have existed for decades uh, mm-hmm. in our country. And if we can't really address that head on, uh, we're going to fall into problems, Mm. uh, especially with, you know, the housing crisis that's going to ensue on us and, Mm. you know, less than a month. If we can't figure out police relations now, when the police are the enforcers of property and are going to be evicting people from their homes, we're really going to be in trouble. Mm. Well, those are some of my, you know, thoughts Mm. and concerns. Mm. Well, thank you for calling in, uh, Justin Farmer. It's actually a good transition to my next question for uh, Representative Porter. Uh, Justin mentioned, again, he's a Hamden Legislative Council member. I believe he's also running uh, to be within the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, But Representative Porter, uh, when we talk about structural racism, systemic racism, tell us what we mean by that and how that also needs to be worked on, not just focusing only on police accountability. Yes, I mean, you know, we, we talk about the disparities of COVID. We can talk about the disparities of, of policing. 
and we have to address our structural inequalities. You know, when we look at housing, we, when we look at education, when we look at labor and the workforce, there are disparities. And let's talk about, I think, the, the thing that could really bring it all together, you know, the environmental injustices, right? The social and environmental inequalities that have contributed to the outsized impact of what I call the COVID and the COP pandemic and how it disproportionately impacts poor communities, black and brown communities. And I think the one thing that COVID has done, the one thing that this, this, this COP pandemic has done during COVID is um, made a lot of the populations we made invisible, visible, mm -hmm. right? So the, these are the issues that need to be looked at. Poor communities have basically always been uh, sacrifice zones because they're dumping grounds for, for polluting facilities, you know? And we talk about, well, we don't really talk about, but we should be talking about the fact that, you know, PM 2.5, which is the fine particle matter, when we look at environmental impact on poor communities, how it re reduces and causes asthma, heart disease, stroke, it elevates blood pressure, increases infant mortality, uh, rates, causes birth defects, low birth defects, diabetes, cancer, premature mortality, premature death, right? So this is why it's important that we have to look at um, the structural deficiencies in our country, because until we, you know, pluck it from the root, we're going to always be dealing with issues such as police brutality, because people are being forced to do things that other people that live in, uh, you know, affluent communities don't have to deal with, mm. you know, uh, just representative in, uh, representative Porter, uh, you're actually after this show, you mentioned uh, when we were off the air that you're going to be going to a press conference talking with essential workers. That is an example during this pandemic, predominantly people of color still having to go to their jobs, putting themselves at risk, while others can comfortably work remotely. Absolutely. And that is a tremendous problem. I mean, it is a problem because it exacerbates the, the, the structural racism that we deal with in this country. And the fact that these are black and brown workers, the fact that these are low wage and minimum wage workers, workers that I actually debated a 14 hour debate on just to get them a $15 minimum wage, 14 hours, the longest debate in, this, in, in the history of this state a longer debate than the death penalty, which was a six hour debate. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it about the mindset of people that don't see black and brown bodies as human? Because this is not only a social and environmental uh, issue, this is a humanity issue. And we need to talk about the humanity and the dignity, not only of workers, but of black and brown bodies. Mm. Before we head to break, Representative Porter, uh, so often when there are these uh, videotaped uh, recorded incidents, again, of police violence, of uh, black and brown uh, individuals uh, being hurt or killed uh, by police, when there are demonstrations, when there are calls to actions, there's so much attention on uh, people of color to explain uh, the, to, to the community about why this is a problem and how can we fix it? At this moment in time, is it 
something that needs to move this forward that we now ask uh, people who are not people of color to become uh, not just allies or sympathizers, but partners in this? I think it goes further than partners, Lucy, because, mm-hmm. you know, the problems that we have, I think part of it for me, you know, when I'm being asked as, as a black woman, you know, what is it we can do? What should we be doing? Mm-hmm. It's what you did that has us in this position. You know what needs mm-hmm. to be done because you did it. So undo it. They don't need us to tell them what needs to be done. We know what needs to be done. And, I, you know, part of the hope, I just want to get this in real quick, is that, you know, my hope is in, increased because of the white people with privilege and power offering to step up but talk is cheap so now is the moment to put your money where your mouth is and to do what needs to be done because if this could be done by black and brown people it would have been done a long time ago what needs to be done needs to be done by the people in power the people with privilege and that is not black and brown people that is white people Mm. and 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 one quick thing uh, uh farmers talked about you know being accused of being violent and disrespectful. And what I want to say to that is that, you know, I'm so sick of hearing about the looting, about the violence, you know, the thugs. What we learned, we learned from white folks. What we have learned, we have learned from police brutality. Uh, Looting, this country has looted from its inception. It, It stole the land from Native Americans. It stole people from Africa, right? Uh, capitalism is looting. What we're dealing with with essential workers is looting. Let's talk about that looting and how that is <laughs> what really is driving violence. Let's talk about, we learned violence. We were taught how to be violent. So I want I want people to be real. I want them to t- stand in the truth. And if they're not prepared, then they need to fall back because right now we need warriors on the front lines. And I'm talking about white people on the front lines that are gonna lead this charge so it's bigger than partnering. It, it's actually, you know, doing what needs to be done. And that's going to take courage because we're going up against a uh, police union. That's a big union, the most powerful union out of all unions. Who's going to step up and tell them that they need to get to the table with us lawmakers and make sure that we get a police accountability bill done in special session that is going to be more than black and white and more than some words on some paper, but actually laws that will be enforced and and lives that will be saved. Representative Porter, Representative Porter, we're going to talk more about uh, policing right after the break. You're hearing State Representative Robin Porter, who serves New Haven and Hamden, also a member of the Connecticut General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Coming up, uh, you've heard people calling for abolishing the police, but we're going to hear a perspective on ways policing can be transformed by viewing it as a public good. More on that right after a short break. This is where we live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, you're hearing on Zoom today, State Representative Robin Porter. She represents New Haven and Hamden, also a member of the Connecticut General Assembly's Judiciary Committee. Uh, I wanted to talk more about uh, this call uh, when we see people of color killed by law enforcement. So often uh, the first thing people want to see, of course, is justice, but police reform, police reform. My next guest says policing as we know it must be abolished before it can be transformed. That sounds complicated, but Tracy Mears says it can be done if 
policing is recentered as a public good. She's a professor at Yale Law School, founding director of the Justice Collaboratory. And back in 2014, she was a member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Tracy, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. You've written um, and talked about uh, policing uh, for many years, a number of essays and op-eds, too, where you've encouraged Americans to take a step back and ask, what are police for in the first place? Uh, when we think about police, we think about public safety, but that it's more complicated than that. Can you explain um, some of your perspective on this question of police reform? I think the important thing to understand is when one speaks about public safety, Um, The common understanding of that is that police are there to use force to address the kinds of interactions, violent interactions that we as private citizens have uh, with each other. And that's a very cramped vision of public safety. Uh, My view of public safety, and I think that of many, is that one has to think not only about the response of the state to those kinds of incidents, but also the danger of overreach by the state to respond to those incidents. That's true public safety. People can't be secure in their own private spaces if they think that the government in their attempt to address that is also going to harm them. But even more than that, a true vision of public safety considers many of the things that Representative Porter was talking about in the last segment. My view of public safety includes the ways in which the state supports citizens in pursuit of vital communities. And that includes education, healthcare, housing. Public safety is a holistic view of what the state can do to support its citizens. We talked a little bit earlier about uh, systemic or institutional racism. Um, Again, the the systems in place, the policies in place uh, that have impacted people of color disproportionately uh, in our country. When we look back at policing, again, historically, could you talk a little bit about that and how police were used really to, again, force uh, and put action against people of color in this country uh, when there was segregation? It's important to understand that in a country that's devoted to democratic government governance through the rule of law, that we've never really had a sustained conversation, as you mentioned earlier, about what police are for and how they should interact with citizens in a deliberative way. Instead, um, policing has has grown up without um, serious d- sustained discussion. Instead, uh, police were used to um, support slave patrols or during uh, the time in history when immigrants, many immigrants came to this country, they were used to uh, quell um, and corral immigrants in certain places mm-hmm. geographically. Police have been used to divide and segregate communities rather than to support them in a, in a holistic way. Um, and that is really um, what I was referring to in that mm-hmm. context. When we were talking about this idea of public safety, when did this idea come around that uh, because there are police that helps redu- reduce crime and that's why it's a necessity? Yeah, it's actually, interestingly, a relatively recent idea. In the Mm -hmm. 60s, if you look at President Johnson's 
Crime Commission report published in 1967, um, there was wide consensus that police really couldn't do anything to address crime. Of course, police could be there to um, bring people to justice who had broken the law. It was actually a relatively new idea that police could actually proactively um, address crime. That's an idea um, that gained some prominence really in the 80s and 90s, and it actually gave police a different claim to their own legitimacy. When I was serving on the president's task force um, for 21st century policing, one of the things we took care to note in that report is that crime reduction is not self-justifying. And by that we meant that police could not or should not um, engage in any activity that they thought was necessary, especially by the use of force. Uh, to quell crime. And we used as an example, New York City's um, very uh, prolific use of stop and frisk, for example, in the name of uh, proactive crime control. Hmm. Uh, well, earlier when I started the, the segment, I talked about this idea about policing as a public good. When we think of public good, we think of public schools, we think of running water. And so when there are, again, uh, many Americans, uh, again, people of color, who when they look at the relationship between uh, their communities and police, they don't see the police as a public good. So can we talk more about you know, how, when we think about transforming it, Tracy, how do we get to that point? Yeah, so I want to say one thing about policing as a public good, which is when I wrote that essay in the Boston Review, I want to be clear, um, is that I did not imagine policing as we know it today to be the public good. That is Mm -hmm. the problem, right? Um, I think there are things we can do right now to make policing less harmful, uh, to set us on a stage, a foundation, so that we can have that important conversation that you mentioned in the last segment in an excellent discussion with Representative Porter about what the state should be doing, right, uh, in order to provide security to all its citizens. And hopefully that thing that we come up with will be something we might call the police. If we were on TV, you could see uh, me and 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 scare quotes, quotes, but what can we do now? Mm -hmm. We need to actually deal with some serious accountability. Police officers who are fired um, for incidents less serious than we saw involving the killing of George Floyd sometimes are able to get jobs in other policing agencies. That is completely unacceptable and shouldn't be the case. We need a national database so that these officers can be decertified and every state in this country should adopt legislation to ensure that agencies aren't allowed to do that. Um, We could have federal standards on use of force that require strategies such as those adopted in Camden, New Jersey, very specific strategies about Mm. the use of force, banning chokeholds. There are lots of things we can do now, but it's important to understand that those things that we do now are not about transforming police in the way that I tried to discuss in my Boston Review piece and in the way that I think Representative Porter was speaking about in the last segment. Hmm. Uh, Representative Porter, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. Can you respond to what Tracy Mears is talking about? You mentioned briefly the role of police unions in the last segment. You and your colleagues, including Senator Winfield, working for many years on police accountability uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, What are the barriers, again, uh, that keep uh, certain measures from moving forward? 
Um, you, you hit it dead on the head, the nail on the head. Uh, the biggest obstacle has been the police union and their um, perceived need to protect all officers. And this is not about being anti-cop. This is about being anti-bad cop. Uh, to whom much is given, much is required. They have to be held to a higher standard. And if we are talking about protecting all people, protecting all lives, cops and citizens, the union needs to get to the table and make it happen because they that, that has been the barrier. And there's a conversation that needs to be had that is going to be difficult, it's going to be raw, it's going to be real, but it needs to happen. You know, people talk about it's difficult. Let me tell you something. Somebody needs to explain to me what could be more difficult than burying your child, your father or your mother, your sister, your brother, your auntie, your uncle. What's more difficult than that? There's nothing difficult about what we need to do. We just need to get it done, uh, Lucy. And we need to make sure that the powerful people in this equation are at the table, willing to make the right decisions and to put the right you know, the right things in place that will hold officers accountable. Mm. We, we did reach out to the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association, and they gave us a statement, Representative Porter. I just wanted to read part of it. Uh, they write, the Connecticut Chiefs of Police have recently worked with the legislature on the use of electronic control weapons or TASER eyewitness identification reforms, restrictions on police pursuits, including limitations on the use of deadly force and the use of body-worn cameras by our officers. Uh, Further, they write, we crafted legislation that created a mandatory set of critical standards and practices. And then uh, Keith Mello, uh, who I believe leads this association, says, however, the death of George Floyd further demonstrates that more needs to be done to address the inequalities in the criminal justice system. So Representative Porter, walk us through in special session uh, what measures you want to see actually pass uh, where uh, you're not going to hear from unions lobbying against them. Uh, I'll tell you, I want to see swift and immediate action when it comes to arrest and release of information to the public and these families. I want them to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, There needs to be a mandate that officers have to intervene and report when they witness unreasonable and excessive force being used by their fellow officers. I believe that there should be a loss of certification and pensions when these cops are convicted and found guilty. And I think that there also needs to be a reason for immediate uh, uh, termination clause. Because when I think about all the jobs that I've held, union and non-union, there have always been reasons for immediate termination. And some of them are violation of code of conduct or ethics policy, failure to uh, follow company policy, breach of contract, violence or threatened violence, threats or threatening behavior, you know, lying, falsifying records. I mean, these are all things that harassment You know, these are all things that I can tell you black and brown people can testify have been exercised against them by men and women in blue. So I'm I'm really like stressing this because what we saw, I don't even understand why they, okay, there, there needs to be a trial that's constitutional, but these officers need to be fired. They, they shouldn't have an option for pension if they are 
convicted. These families don't have options. These are people that are financial supporters of families. You know, George Floyd was a father with children and now he's gone. And it's just not about the financial responsibility of men and women to their families who are being murdered. It's also the spiritual and emotional loss, torment, trauma, compounded trauma, urban trauma. So those are some of the things that I think we really need to make sure go into full effect and are a part of any legislation that we are looking to craft in special session. Mm -hmm. And we need to get it done in special session. This cannot wait. Aaliyah on Twitter writes, start local. I recognize I need to pay more attention to my town and state budgets. How much funding goes to the police versus other services that can help the community? Community leaders need to proactively be at the table, a review of police policies and acknowledge racism. I wanted to go back to uh, Tracy Mears again, who is a professor at Yale Law School, also founding uh, director of the Justice Collaboratory. Uh, when we hear uh, residents uh, call for uh, defunding the police or abolishing the police again, uh, that can be complicated. But can you talk more about some of the other structural issues at play that need to be worked out, um, as well as this uh, improving uh, the trust between police and the communities they serve? Well, I guess I want to say three, maybe four things, and I'll try to make it quick. The, uh, the approach of improving trust and legitimacy requires um, a shift in police emphasis from identifying and, you know, bringing, thinking of their sole job as uh, identifying wrongdoers and thinking about strategies to um, improve trust and confidence, such as giving people voice, treating people with uh, dignity and respect, making sure that your decisions are transparent, um, based in facts, and also acting in ways that allow people to expect benevolence from you. That is the foundation of trust and legitimacy, which is described in the first pillar of the president's task force in 21st century policing. This idea about thinking about defunding, of course, requires a change in the what emergency responders with guns do, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so even in a world in which you imagine better education, social workers who might be able to be a first responder at a situation involving a mental health crisis and the like. Those are places where armed police now show up because they are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There are still going to be, I'm guessing, a need for armed first responders to show up in some cases. And in that situation, we need to be very clear about what those situations are, and again, you know, what these officers do when they show up. And I guess the last thing I want to say, which brings me to four points, is people <laughs> need to understand when you're looking at police budgets or, or city budgets, which are dominated by um, both policing and education, that a huge part of those budgets are the pensions that Representative Porter mentioned today. So when people are looking at a, a police budget, they probably think that a lot of that money goes into the day-to-day -day operation of policing. That's actually uh, not true. And that's one of the issues that makes this complicated in a world in which state and local budgets are gonna be crushed by the response that we have to the COVID pandemic, which is still happening. That's an important point. Uh, before uh, we 
to break. Uh, Tracy, I understand you've been nominated by Mayor Elliker to New Haven's Police Commission. Uh, so uh, I'm just curious, uh, moving forward again, uh, this is a, a city uh, that has had issues with even uh, building a robust civilian review board. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are um, as you look to uh, this commission post. Well, one of the things that I'm incredibly interested in is this idea of accountability. So civilian review boards are usually what you might consider back-end accountability, looking at particular instances of wrongdoing and thinking about how to um, address that particular person in terms of whether they lose their job or you know, possibly lose pensions and so on, as Representative Porter was talking about. But there is an incredible need for front-end accountability that we've been speaking about today. To the extent that we have police as they exist right now, we're using force, there needs to be a conversation about how you make police agents agents of their principles. The principle, of course, is the community that they serve. And in too many cases, uh, policing presents itself as um, an agency with a plan that needs to be endorsed by a board such as that that exists in New Haven. That's the wrong way around, right? Um, That makes the police the principal and it makes the commission the agent. And that's really not the way it should look. So I'm hoping that um, the police board can see itself as a representative of the community to articulate the goals and projects for Uh, the New Haven Police Department that then the chief will um, develop policy and carry those views out. That's the proper alignment of a relationship between a commission such as the one that New Haven has Mm -hmm. and the police department here. Well, I want to thank Tracy Mears for joining us. I wish we had more time. Professor at Yale Law School, also founding director of the Justice Collaboratory. Hopefully we can have you back on the show, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. And it was good to speak to you all today. Also, uh, thanks to State Representative Robin Porter. We'll definitely want to have you back, especially when that special session gets scheduled. Representative Porter, we thank you for your time on Where We Live. You're very welcome, Lucy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, a lot of statements have come out over the last week condemning the police killing of George Floyd. But Black residents say this moment calls for more than just sharing sentiments. We talk with a local artistic director about his letter to the community. And we'll take your comments, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Godfrey Simmons Jr. is the artistic director of Heartbeat Ensemble. It's a community-based theater collective in Hartford. And in the days after the death of George Floyd and the protests around the country, Simmons noticed many groups, organizations sending out statements. So Simmons sent out a letter to the community, too. But in it, he suggests more than sharing sentiments. He joins us now to talk about it. Uh, Godfrey, welcome to our show. Hey, thank you so much, Lucy. Appreciate it. Uh, so your letter is titled A Letter from a Black Artistic Director. Uh, talk about uh, what you wanted to convey in that letter, not only for people of color in our community, but for uh, white residents in Connecticut as well. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I think it, there's not many um, artistic directors um, of color in the United States, period. And um, and so part of it was just wanting to really just name that, right? That like that. Mm-hmm. That's an important part of the uh, piece of this. And I think the thing is, is, what I was trying to get across is that 
it's important to it's it's great to kind of like have sentiments. It's great to have like, hey, we're with you. But I I just kept wondering, well, what are we going to do? And it's a difficult question for theater because I think a lot of times theater is not seen as um, you know essential, right? And of course, we feel like it is. Arts are essential, and so what is the thing that we can do? And the thing that we do is that we provide space for um, the stories of our of our communities, whether they're you know, no matter who they're written by, if they're written by August Wilson, if they're written by, you know, um, Maria Irene Fornes, or if they're written by Shakespeare, right? It doesn't matter. It, we're a place where stories are heard. And so I just felt, you know, what's the, what's the tiny thing that we could do? And it was just, you know, opening space up, uh, particularly for um, Black black folks, Indigenous folks, and uh, people of color, so to, to just relax and to just be... Mm-hmm. Right. And that's happening tonight, Godfrey. Tell us this virtual space. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this virtual um, space uh, is happening tonight at uh, 8 p.m. Registration um, is, is happening now. Um, you can find out information on our website. But um, it's happening. It's happening tonight at 8. It will be co-facilitated by myself and Hanifa Nayo Washington, who's um, a, uh, uh, from One Village Healing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 what we're really going to do is we're just going to kind of create a space where we can kind of figure out, like, what do people need? Um, and, and, and really just check in with each other, right? Um, there's not a lot of spaces, I feel like, where, you know, we can just kind of be and just kind of decompress from what's going on. And this is, and, and we're focusing on artists. Uh, activists and uh, students right now, and really that's part, partly that's because that's authentic to Heartbeat Ensemble because that's you know who we've worked with a lot, artists and, and activists and, and and high school college students. Um, and so part of that is just trying to be authentic to mm-hmm. kind of like our expertise, right? Well, Godfrey, we got a, a caller called in, didn't want to go on the air, and uh, she's someone who's not a person of color, and she called to find out where she can find out more information about protests that are happening. But I think you have one better, where uh, your space, yeah. uh, you're also looking to create a virtual space for self-identified white people to strategize, to show up, to work on anti-racism. Tell us about that quickly. Yeah, um, so... Right now, it's really important to center um, to center um, Black folks right now, um, Black folks and Indigenous folks right now in this moment. But um, in two or three weeks, we're going to um, be letting people know about a space where white folks can just kind of check in with each other about how you're showing up um, for uh, for this cause, right? How you're showing up for Black people in this moment, right? Um, because of coronavirus has kind of just, you know, laid completely bare the disparities on a real fundamental level. Uh, add that to what's happening with the George Floyd situation. Um, uh, it, it just, it's just clear that, you know, white people are thinking, how can I, what can I do? What can I do? And they need to look to each other for that. And there are, you know, there are people who have experience, you know, working with um, white communities on that. And I'm not sure if there's anything like that happening in Hartford specifically. I know that it's in a lot of communities, um, 
But it seemed like that there was an opening to really be able to provide that for, um, you know, for white people from the greater Hartford area as well. Mm-hmm. In your letter. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, in your letter, you call these affinity spaces tiny, tiny acts that may create the tiniest of cracks in the foundation of white supremacy. That really struck me. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I it, well, it just takes it just takes one move, right? Mm-hmm. Like one 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 little thing can actually just alter everything. Um, you know, I'm an actor. By, by, by trade. So I know that when I go on a stage and I do a show, I can't tell you how many people will say, um, I'm, ch- I was changed because I saw that one thing that you did. And I'm not famous. I'm not some like, you know, b- b- a brilliant award winning, you know, actor dude, right? I'm just someone who's just doing my job. But th- there are these little tiny things that we can do. Um, to actually shift the conversation, and it's you've got to shift the hearts of people. Um, you've got to you've got to shift that before anything's going to happen mm-hmm. with the structures. Well, Godfrey Simmons Jr., I know you're also new to our state. Uh, you've been here for several months now, but new to our show, and I'd love to have you back to talk about the work that Heartbeat Ensemble is doing under your direction, uh, Godfrey. Oh. We also want to let our listeners know we're going to have a link on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, so that uh, people can know more about these affinity spaces. Godfrey, th- Godfrey, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Lizzie, thank you. Appreciate it. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. Again, you can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>